Lord Jesus, as I started the, this morning saying, we have come to fix our eyes on you. Now as we, as we come to your word and we uh, walk through the, the theology that we've been working through, may you just make your presence known. Lord, may these, may these be more than just stuffy statements uh, or, or passages from a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Lord, may you bring your word to life. You say it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. May you come and bring your word to life in our midst this morning. May you move in your people, and may we leave this place different because we've been in the presence of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have been, uh, we started at the beginning of September, working through a series called Back to the Basics, uh, looking at the basics of our faith. Uh, there's this big, scary word that we've been talking about every week. Does anybody remember what word I'm going to, and I tell you every week, don't be scared of this word. Anybody remember what word it is? Theology. One person remembers. Theology can be a very scary word for a lot of us because it seems like something some professor in a, in a classroom has to teach or some big, thick book that you got to blow the dust off before you open it. But what we've been looking at is the fact that we all have a theology. Theology simply means our beliefs about God, who God is and who we are in response to that. And so what we've been doing is walking through our denomination's statement of faith, the kind of the, the core, the foundational beliefs that we have, basically to go, hey, let's make sure we're on the same page. Let's make sure we understand what it is we say that we believe. And so as we walk through these, I want you to understand, it's, it's never going to be important that you know these statements of faith, but like verbatim, that you have them memorized, that you remember, wait, was it, was it this word? Then that? There's never going to be a test it is unimportant to remember the words of these statements verbatim, but it is incredibly important to understand the ideas that they represent. There will never be a test to make sure that you remember all of the wording, but you have to understand this. Life is a test to see if you understand the ideas, to see if you actually understand what it means. Our first statement of faith was on the perfection of God and the Trinity, no, very few people are ever going to sit down and go, okay, now show me chapter and verse, perfection of God, and make sure that you have it like that. But every time you get faced with trouble, you're going to have to come to the test and go, do I really believe that he is perfect and good? Do you see this? Life is testing your theology. And so what we're trying to do here is make sure that we really understand what it is we say that we believe. Does that make sense, church? Okay, so last week, we were looking at our fifth statement of faith, and I, I called this the bookends. This was kind of the origin story of mankind and the final destination. It covers like millennia in the gap here, and it goes like this. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment, and that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. So, so last week, we were looking at this statement, and it's those bookends. Where we started, it's chapter one, and then you flip all the way to the end, and you find out the butler did it. Do you guys ever have those mystery books? You ever skip to the end because you got bored in the middle? And just, Who did it? I just want to know. That's what this statement does. It goes, hey, here's where we started. Sinful and helpless. And here's where things are going. 
in the end, there's only two destinations. We said last week there's only two kinds of people. Those who respond to the good news of Jesus and those who don't. And so last week we looked at those, those bookends, speaking about the, the, the test of life to understand the thoughts and the ideas. If we, miss this, if we miss this one, where we started and where we're going, we're either gonna have too high of a view of ourselves that I'm actually a really good person, I just make some mistakes every now and again, and I don't even really need saving. Or we're gonna have too light of a view of eternity. That, that what happens doesn't really matter, we'll worry about that someday later. To have an understanding of where we came from and where we're going is to have a realistic view of myself. I am sinful by nature. And without what Jesus does for me, I'm destined for hell. Do you see the importance of understanding these ideas? You are never going to have to say the words, what is it, thereby incurring both physical and spiritual death. You will never have to utter those words. But you do need to understand that without Jesus, death is all we have left for us. That we need his help. Or else we're left to stand in our own defense. Does this make sense, church? So last week we were looking at those bookends. What I want to look at now is the meat of the story. Our response. What happens in the middle? We started off and we were completely helpless. Sinful and deserving of death. One day we will stand before the judge. And again, there's, there's only two verdicts that are going to be given. What about now? What about the in-between? Our response to the news that we heard last week. So the sixth statement of faith goes like this. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. And those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become the children of God. This is the meat of it. This, this is the thing that, like, man, if you don't get anything else out of all of these statements, faith, we're going to look at, this is the meat of it. This is the thing that when we stand before the judge one day, this is really the only question that's going to be asked. How did you respond to the news that you heard? How did you respond to your own sinfulness and the good news that Jesus came and died for you? So let's break this down as we've been doing every week. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ. Salvation from what? Like, I just want to always keep touching back on this. Have you, are you guys familiar with the word Christianese? Have you ever heard that before? The language that only church people talk and only church people know? Like you say these words sometimes out in the world and people are like, oh no, this is going to get weird, isn't it? Saved is one of those words. Like, are you saved? The first question people should ask, saved from what? Like we, we use the term and we have this, all these implied meanings that go with it. We have to make sure we understand saved from what? We talked about this last week. We're saved from spiritual death. What, what spiritual death actually means is this separation from God, the creator and the source of life. Our sin separates us from him. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God. Your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. This is what sin does. We talked about this last week. It builds this wall between us and our Savior, between us and the source of life. And when you're cut off from life, there's only one thing left. Death. Spiritual death. We have been saved from spiritual death. We have been reconnected to the source of life. 
that we can now have spiritual life and purpose and joy and hope and peace through what Jesus has done. Spiritual death. We are also saved from what the Bible refers to as the second death. Uh, In Revelations 21, hell is described, and it's not a, a fun picture. And John says, now, this is the second death. The Apostle Paul describes it like this. We looked at this passage last week. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Apart from Jesus, we are not only spiritually dead now, cut off from that source, searching for hope and peace and joy that we can never attain by ourselves, But also the only thing waiting for us at the end of that road is a final death, an eternal death. But praise be to God, through what Jesus has done on our behalf, we have been saved. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ. Salvation from death in this world and death in the next. Even to the point where for those of us who believe in Jesus, physical death is not the end for us, right? Amen? If you've ever been to the the funeral of a believer, you'll hear weird things like instead of just going, man, he's gone and we're going to miss him. You do hear that. But then you hear things like, but he's gone home. But he's experiencing now what we have always wanted to experience. Because even physical death is not the end of our story. We have been given life, which we'll look at again in a moment. We have been saved from death, both now and forever. So salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ. I want to look at that word provided there real quick. If I told you, hey, I want you guys to come over to my house after church. Don't worry, lunch will be provided. What would that mean? (laughs) It means I'm going to feed you, yeah. What What else does it mean? Lunch is provided. What do you need to bring with you? I mean, your appetite. (laughs) Nothing. What's it going to cost you? To come have lunch at my house. Remember, it's been provided. What's it going to cost? Nothing. What help of yours do I need? None. Lunch has been provided. We, we know what that means. Jesus takes it, man, so many steps further. Salvation has been provided. It's been taken care of at no cost to you. It has been completely prepared. Your help is not required. There is nothing you need to do to add to it. It has been provided salvation from all the deaths that we talked about, has been provided free of charge, free of charge to you. If you come to lunch at my house, who actually bought lunch? Who had to go to the store and actually pay the bill? Me, right? Free to you. Somebody always pays the bill. Salvation has been provided through Jesus. He paid the bill. Here's the thing. We we talked about this again a little bit last week. The wages of sin is death. The bill that comes due for sin is death. And so it's not that Jesus just talked to God the Father and went, hey, how about we just turn a blind eye? They're saying like, eh, let's just pretend like it didn't happen. He instead paid the bill. He paid the death that was due so that we wouldn't have to. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. 
Paul wanted to make it so incredibly clear. Salvation has been provided and it is a gift to you. It is not from your works. There is nothing you can do to earn it. It is only God's grace. Does anybody remember the definition of grace? Undeserved favor, unmerited favor is commonly used. Nothing you could do to deserve it or earn it, yet it was given to you. Salvation has been provided by Jesus, and it was God's grace, a complete gift. Not of our works. There's nothing to boast about. There's no, I was so good, God came and saved me. If anything, Paul says later he's going to boast in his weakness. The only thing I have to boast in is I was such a horrible person. God even saved me. I did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. None of my works amounted to anything. Salvation was provided as a gift through Jesus Christ. Salvation was provided through Jesus Christ for all men. Now, I'm going to keep saying this, just I don't want it to be a sticking point to anyone. These statements were written a long time ago, and so when it uses the term men, it means mankind, not like gender-specific men. Salvation was provided for all mankind. It was made available to all mankind. Let me tell you what we're not saying, and then we'll talk about what we are. What we're not saying is there's this belief out there called universalism. That means when Jesus died on the cross, salvation was applied to everyone, whether they wanted it or not. That what Jesus did was kind of force salvation on all mankind. That's not actually what we find in the scriptures. That's some bad theology, some stinking thinking, as my friend Ken would say it. But instead, it's been made available to all mankind. If I invite you guys over to lunch and I say lunch has been provided, I'm not now going to come to your house and drag you over, right? Some of you are going to decline my invitation. I've set the table. Everything is ready. It has been provided. But you need to respond. But you need to accept the invitation. But you need to make your way over to my house to enjoy the lunch that I've provided. The same is true of the salvation that Jesus has provided. The table has been set. The offer has been sent out to every single living person. The question is, will we respond? Will we take him up on his offer? Do we have any Awana's kids left in here right now? Is it just Maverick? Maverick and Amos? Okay, we got a, we got a couple. So last month in September, let's see how many of you remember. Yeah, you are. How many of you remember? What was your Awana verse for the month of September? Can you say it? Can you guys say it? Yeah. You can also applaud for his mom, because uh, that was amazing. And Amos, Amos, what's the reference for that? What verse is that? I heard you shout it. John 3.16. Thank you, Amos. Very good. For God so loved what? The world. The whole world. 
He loved the whole world so much he was moved to action. The translation that I've been reading lately says it this way. For God loved the world in this way. Let me describe how God loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For all mankind to be able to come to him. The invitation has been sent out to all. I don't have have this in my notes real quick. Who's the messengers for the invitation? How is God sending the invitation out to all of mankind? Us. The invitation has been prepared and sent out. You and I are to be the messengers of the good news. Salvation has been provided for you. There is a free gift if you'll only accept it. God has made it available to all mankind, and he wants all mankind to hear about it. And that's where we come in. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks, the mission that God has given his church. But salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. All are welcome to it. All are invited to it. And those who repent and believe in him. Let's take a minute and let's look at these two words, repent and belief. The invitation has gone out to everyone. It's been made available, provided for, and everyone is invited. But there's a response that is needed. Those who repent and believe in him. This word repent, this was where Jesus used all the time. Like every message that he would give when he would go from town to town to town, it always had something like this in it. Matthew chapter 4, for example. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus would lead his message with a call to repentance. You must repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So church, let me ask you this. What does it mean to repent? To change direction. The the word itself, like the definition of the word, literally means a change of heart and mind, a 180 degree shift. I was walking toward my sin. Now I'm walking away from my sin. I was walking away from God. Now I'm walking toward him. Repentance must happen. What what does repentance like practically look like? We can understand the definition. Oh, okay, I, I, I changed directions. What does repentance look like for those that want to accept the invitation to follow Jesus? Okay. Okay, she said stop living her way and ask Jesus what's his way. What way does he want her to live? Okay. What else? What does it look like to repent? We use the word all the time. If somebody comes to you and goes, okay, I, I want what you're saying. I hear that word repentance, but like, what, what do I do? What does it actually mean? What will we tell them? Is Cheryl the only one that knows? You live in a way that people who knew you before can see that something is different. Okay. You live in a way so that people that knew you before you receive that invitation, they can see that something's changed. A change of direction is more than just in my head. There's actually a living out that comes to it. The way I live is going to change. Okay? Sure. Okay, today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do it differently, right? Like, that's, that's the earning. Like, so it can't 
but death. Like, that's yeah. all I keep ending up with. Like, it yeah. just keeps failing me. So, like, so, like, dying to that and saying, so I'll just follow you. Like, if this is real, then you're my Lord. You'll, you will take this, and I'll take your life, and then, yeah. you know, like, Jesus, take the wheel. It always comes back. <laughs> when I'm walking this way, away from God, toward my sin, who's in charge? Me. Who decides what's right and wrong? Me. To repent is to stop and to go, wait, wait, wait. I see where me being in charge is getting me, and I don't want that. You be in charge. You decide what's right and wrong. You set my path and lead me in the way that I should go. To repent is this literal, like, my heart was attached to these things. Now instead I'm attaching it to you. It's this physical, not physical, this very practical change that needs to bear fruit, that people need to see a difference in because it's not just words. We've oftentimes turned repent into like saying you're sorry. I, I, you need to tell God you're sorry and you need to tell the person you're sorry. And here's the thing, that's not completely wrong. Repentance begins with recognizing I've chosen wrong. I have sinned. I, I've disobeyed. I've made the wrong choices. It has to start with an understanding of our sinfulness. If, if we don't understand that we're sinful... We have no need for salvation. Many will decline the invitation for salvation because they go, I don't really need it. I'm good. I'm doing fine. You can't repent until you first recognize I'm walking in sinfulness. The way that I'm going is leading toward death. But here's here's the hard part. For those of us that have already received this and we have friends and family members that we're praying for that we want to see repent and turn to Jesus Here's a sticking point. You can't convince people of their sinfulness, and you were never meant to. It's It's not your job to convince other people that they're sinful. I need to own it myself, but I can't own it for you. I've heard so many different ways of sharing the gospel with people over the years that start with the idea of first thing you need to do is prove to someone that they're a sinner. And so you ask them, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? See, gotcha, you're a sinner. Man, people push back so hard against that. And in some ways, I'm going to say rightfully so. It's not our job to convince the world that they're sinful. Whose job is it? Remember the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, guys. No matter what I say, yes. Holy Spirit's where we're going, but if you're ever not sure, just yell Jesus. It it eats a banana, it has a tail, and it swings from trees. What is it? Jesus, okay? That's the answer in church and Sunday school. What we find Jesus teaching about the Holy Spirit coming, he says this in John chapter 16, when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is not our job to convince other people that they're sinful, It's our job once people come to that point of going, I'm in over my head, I need help and I don't know where to turn, we share the good news with them. We can share with them the stories of when we realized that our sin had dug us a hole we couldn't climb out of, but it's not our job to convince or as the the scriptural word, to convict other people. That's the Holy Spirit's job. 
Don't get stuck in that. But once they recognize their sinfulness, once they recognize their need for help, that's when we come with the good news of repentance. Peter says this in Acts chapter 3 to the people who just weeks before murdered Jesus. Here's Peter's message to them. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is what's at the heart of repentance. The way you're heading is leading to death. And in fact, you're slowly dying now. If you will turn back to the Lord, turn away from your sin and turn back to him, your sins will be wiped out. That barrier between you and him will be removed and times of refreshing will come from his presence. Confession is a piece of repentance and this is an unpopular word even in the church. 1 John 1, 9 to 10, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, or excuse me, this version says faithful and righteous uh, to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Especially as followers of Jesus, we have to be in the practice of confessing our sin. Sometimes it's just going to be between me and him. More often than I'm comfortable with, it's going to be bringing in another brother or sister and confessing my sin one to another so that I can truly have freedom, so that the way is really paved for times of refreshing to come from the Lord. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, this idea of confession and repentance is not just a New Testament thing, not just since Jesus came. It has always been God's heart. Proverbs, which was written hundreds, if not a thousand years before Jesus came, says the one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. God is waiting to pour out mercy on those that repent, on those that turn back to him. Here's the thing. It's not this idea where like God's over there and I'm walking away from him. And when I finally decide to repent, I turn and man, I got a long walk back, right? I turn and I find he's right here. He's been waiting for me. He's been moving toward me. This is the good news we have to offer people. If you will choose to turn to him, he's been waiting to pour out his grace and his mercy. Nothing you could do to earn it. All he wants you to do is turn to him. Is this making sense, church? Getting a lot of, a lot of blank stares here. We're talking about salvation. Like, this is good stuff. Last week had some tough spots in it, talking about hell. This is the good stuff. Those that repent and believe in him. The other part of John 3.16, we kind of stopped a little early. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? That word, those words get used a lot. What do we actually mean when we talk about believing in Jesus? Again, if we don't know this one, we have some foundational problems, church. Okay? To trust in him. That word belief and the word trust, synonymous. Like they, we're talking about the exact same thing here. What, what happens too often is that word belief gets turned into, like, I believe, um, I think in history, and Alexander Hamilton is coming to my head, so we'll see where this goes. I believe there was a guy named Alexander Hamilton. Like, he, he actually existed, and he did some crazy things. We, we're still seeing the effects of a lot of the things that he did, right? Right? Our financial institution, 
How many of you actually know anything about Alexander Hamilton? If not, maybe you've never heard. There's a musical. Uh, you can learn some things. Uh, I won't vouch for all of it, but I believe that Alexander Hamilton lived, and it makes no difference in my life. It's just some stuff that I know, some knowledge that I know. Many people think that they're doing okay because they believe a man named Jesus lived. They even believe a man named Jesus died on the cross. And he did it, had something to do with sin, I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, sure. <laughs> Hannah, that's a good reaction, thank you for that. <laughs> Cheryl said, and so do the demons, and they tremble. The, 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 Jesus says that, man, even the demons know his name, and in fact, they tremble at his name. Here's just the reality. How many demons are we going to see in heaven, church? Not a one of them. Because their belief isn't trust. They don't trust in Jesus. They know that there's a Jesus out there. And in fact, they even know well enough that they're terrified of him. But they don't trust him. To believe in Jesus is to put the weight of your life in his hands. We've talked oftentimes about uh, another word that goes with belief called faith. I can have faith that this stool is strong, that this stool will hold my weight if I sit on it. Does any of that matter if I'm not sitting on the stool? I don't really have faith in this stool until I place my weight in it, until I trust it to hold me. Now I have faith in this stool. We are the same way with Jesus. We can know about him. We can even go, yeah, amen. But do you actually trust him with your life? Your life now, that he's better at leading it than you are? And with your eternity one day, do we actually believe in Jesus? Romans 10, 9, and 10, the Apostle Paul talking, and he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes in the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. Now the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I love how Paul didn't just say believe in your heart, confess with your mouth and leave it at that. He said believe in your heart resulting in righteousness. If your belief doesn't bear fruit, doesn't actually bring change, doesn't change the way you live from sinful to righteous, you don't have belief. You know some things about a guy, but you don't actually trust him. To put your trust in Jesus always results in transformation, always results in righteous living. To the point where uh, you can read James chapter one sometime on your own. James says that, look, if you don't have a faith that results in good deeds, that results in good works, your faith is dead and it cannot save you. He doesn't say have some good works that result in faith. Let me be very clear. He doesn't say, therefore, go and earn from God. But he says, if you say you have faith, but it's not actually changing who you are from the inside out, you've been lying to yourself. And in fact, your faith is dead. This belief that we talk about, repentance, and belief, they will produce real-world change. You will become a different person, or you do not have faith. It's that simple. To believe in Jesus is to be changed, to be transformed, to look more like him. And listen, I'm not talking about 
it happened yesterday and you are a completely different person today. It's over time, over years. But if the trajectory of my life is not moving closer to becoming like him, then my faith is dead. Then I've settled for knowing about him. I don't really know him. And here's the thing that I, I, I hope this has been clear, but I want to make it abundantly clear. When we talk about repentance and belief, these are not just initial responses to the good news of Jesus. Hearing about our sinfulness and his, his salvation that's available for us and heaven that is one day waiting. It's not just we hear that and we go, oh God, I'm so sorry for my sin. Please save me. I love you. I, I trust you. And then we kind of go back to our lives. It's this everyday, ongoing response. That every day I wake up and I kind of have a salvation experience again. Not like, oh no, I was going to hell when I slept and I have to wake up and get resaved. Not that kind of junk. But this thing of waking up every day and going, Lord, I trust you again. I trust you with everything I have. I believe that your way is better than my way. And every day I just continue in that same response repentance from my sin, from following after my own way, and belief that you can do it better. And so I trust you, Lord. It's this everyday, ongoing response. Not one time when I was in church camp when I was 10, I signed a card, therefore I'm good. Every day, waking up and again, placing my life in his hands and going, I can trust you. You're good. Where are we going today? Does this make sense, church? Okay. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. And those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become the children of God. So let's, let's break some of these down. Here's another one of those weird Christianese words, born again. Have you guys ever, like, have you ever heard non-Christians talk about people that are born again? It's typically something like, oh man, they weren't, they weren't even just a Christian, they were born again. And it's like, oh, watch out for them. And there's almost like these levels. Like, yeah, there's church-going people, but then, oh, they were one of those born-agains. And it's like a dirty word. Oh, they're weird. Oh, those people. We often have no idea what it actually means. It's a label that's been used. To be born again is not some political thing, not some box that you check. There was a guy named Nicodemus who, uh, he was a teacher of the law, a really smart guy. And one day he meets with Jesus and he goes, all right, I've been hearing everything you've been saying and you've been talking about this new way of doing life. And Nicodemus, kind of, he meets with him in secret. He's kind of embarrassed a little bit, but he goes, hey, just, I just want to hear some more. Tell me more. And Jesus says this to him in Matthew chapter three. I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was going, you, you keep talking about this kingdom of God. Tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And Jesus says, listen, Nick, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus does what most of us would do. He plays dumb a little bit. And he goes, what, you have to like climb back into your mother's womb and like be born again? Jesus, this is weird. And you can just imagine Jesus looking at him going, really? You, you really thought that's where I was going? And Jesus says, look, unless you are born the Holy Spirit, uh, unless you are literally changed from flesh, which the, the, the scripture uses the word flesh synonymously with the world, the things that the world desires, you, that's what you're chasing after. Unless you're born again of the Holy Spirit, you become like the Holy Spirit, someone who craves spiritual things and the things of the Spirit. Unless you are born of something new through the Holy Spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. 
It's this transformation that we've been talking about. I was a man of the flesh, chasing after the things of the flesh, but now I've been born again. I'm a man of the Spirit, and I chase after the things of the Spirit. Do you see the difference in the two? Listen, and I don't do it perfectly. It's not that I've never made another mistake again. I still choose the flesh regularly, and in those times I have to turn and go, wait, that's not who I am. I've been born again of the Holy Spirit. Now I desire the things of my Father, the things of the Spirit, righteousness and peace and hope and joy. Those who who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit. We're literally transformed into something new. We receive the gift of eternal life. Last week, we looked at the first half of this verse, Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. That was the bad news. All you've ever earned for yourself on your own is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You have earned for yourself death and judgment. But the gift that God has offered us to those who repent and believe is eternal life. Life now, again, reconnected with the source and eternal life that lasts forever. The, the statement last, last week said, everlasting joy and bliss. We will live forever connected to God, the author and creator of life, the source of it all, one day in perfect unity. No more sin, We looked at this passage last week in Revelation 21. No more death, no more crying, no more pain, but instead just perfect peace with our king. That is the definition of life. To be able to be the people we were originally created to be in perfect unity with our king and in perfect unity with each other. No more strife and backbiting and fighting and what do they really think about me, but instead being able to to be the man or the woman you were created to be in perfect unity with your father and with your brothers and sisters. We've been given the gift of eternal life. The, The scripture uses the picture of a well overflowing with water. And he says that's what the life is like in the life of a believer. It's this deep well that is just overflowing with life. So much, I can't contain it. I got life coming out of my ears. It's actually getting on the people around me. Eternal life, abundant life. And that we have been given the right to become the children of God. Listen, oftentimes salvation is kind of painted in a courtroom scene. And I've used a courtroom scene a couple times um, as we've been walking through our statement of faith. And it's this, we were over here defending ourselves and we know we're guilty, but Jesus stands up and says, I'll take it from them. They're innocent. I'll take the punishment. Let them go. Here's the thing. In a courtroom scene, we now walk out onto the street and go, now what? Like my debt was canceled, but now what? I'm still in the same mess that I was in before. Somebody just took the penalty for me. God didn't just leave us there. He said, okay, you're declared innocent. Now come live with me. Now now get adopted into my family. I didn't just cancel your debt, but in fact, I've put more in your account than you could ever hope to spend. You have now become the children of God. John 1.12, Jesus uh, speaking, or John speaking of Jesus, and he says, but all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God 
to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. You hear that born again part. He gave the right to become the children of God. One of the, the, the things that we learn as you read through the scripture about this, this adoption or this becoming a child of God is you also become a co-heir with Christ. What, what does that word mean, co-heir? It's not one we use often nowadays. What does that mean for us? Some of you have been doing this a lot longer than me. You, you should know this. Okay, a co-heir with Christ, that we share the same blessing. Okay, what else? What, what is an heir? Okay, someone who inherits something. Typically, like back in their day, it was the son would inherit everything the father had. Okay? And especially the firstborn son, he got like extra stuff. And we have been called co-heirs, like equal heirs with Christ. What does that mean? We get what he gets. What does Jesus get? Everything the Father has is Jesus's. And now we have been made children of God, sons and daughters of God, so that everything the Father has is ours. Every blessing Jesus gets, we share in. It's ours as well. Everything the Father has, he has made available to his children. So, I mean... We can't even really fathom this. We weren't just, okay, declared innocent and put out on the street, go figure it out. We were then adopted in, and part of that adoption is he told, oh, by the way, you've been made richer than anyone could ever believe, not with money, with peace, with hope, with joy, with purpose, with unity, with love. You have been given more than you could ever hope to spend because you have now been made an heir with Jesus. Everything God the Father, the one who spoke the world into being, everything he has now belongs to us as well. Why aren't any of us crying right now? Like, I, I don't get it. I'll tell you that flat out. I, I have begun to understand this much of it, the old tip of the iceberg thing. If we would spend our lives even trying to understand what it means to be children of the Most High God, We'd be brought to our knees every day. Everything he has is made available to us because of the salvation Jesus provided. No longer orphans, no longer wandering the streets going, but who am I really? But what am I really supposed to do? But adopted in and made heirs of the Most High God. Children of the Most High. Salvation has been provided through Jesus Christ for all men. And those who repent and believe in him are born again of the Holy Spirit, receive the gift of eternal life, and become the children of God. Closing with this, Paul says uh, to his friend Titus, he says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified in, by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Paul was really good. I, I call that nutshelling, like taking the whole thing and just go, let me wrap this up in a nice little bow for you. Because of what Jesus did, and I love it, because of the kindness and love of God our Savior. Understand this, no one was twisting God's arm. God didn't like 
save us out of some like compulsion of like, ah, oh, the day's finally come. I guess I have to. It was his kindness and love, his mercy. He had actually been waiting for the day that he could come and save us. And when his kindness and love appeared through Jesus, our Savior, we received all things. His mercy poured out on us. Sonship and daughtership, the gift of eternal life, being born again so that now we actually can please our Father through faith. This is the gift of God, and it has all been provided through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross in our place, and his resurrection from the dead. Even death couldn't stop him from pouring out this blessing on us. And now because he's overcome death, we get to overcome death. Because he has union with the Father, we have union with the Father. You guys don't have lunch plans, do you? I can just keep going for a while. Like, this is good news. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Paul says in the beginning of Ephesians. More than we can possibly imagine. And it's all been provided by our big brother, Jesus, who went to bat for us when we couldn't go to bat for ourselves. We have been made co-heirs with Christ and children of God. I don't know where. Hannah, can you go get the children's church people and bring them back in? As we transition into a time of communion, it's a time to participate in what we just talked about. Communion is meant to be this this way of like actually engaging with God and remembering what he has done for us. It's really a time for two things, examination and celebration. As you guys well know, before we come to the communion table, we always want to examine our hearts. We always want to come and say, God, is there anything that I'm withholding from you? Remember, we said that belief, that faith in him is really about trust. It really boils down to control. You're in control, I'm not. You're king, I'm not. You're God, I'm not. Lord, is there anything I'm withholding from you? Anything you're telling me to hand over for my own good, and I'm saying no. If so, would you bring those things to my attention? Would you show me the areas of my life where I'm trying to keep you out, where I'm trying to hold on to my sin? Because we know you, you can't celebrate what Jesus has done to free you from your sin and hold on to your sin at the same time. It's hypocrisy. So we're called to examine our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you, would you examine my heart? Would you show me where are the areas that I'm, I'm keeping you out? And at that point, you're going to have an opportunity to do business with the Lord. Will you let him in? Will you truly trust him in those areas? If he brings those things to you, spend time right where you're seated and do business with him. And then afterwards, as we sing, we're going to celebrate The way we celebrate, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, to come and remember not only what it cost for us to be adopted in, but what he willingly gave. God loved the world in this way. He was so passionately in love with you and in pursuit of you that it was his kindness and mercy. It was was his desire to be broken in your place. And so we tear off a piece of bread that reminds us of the broken body of Jesus. And we'll dip it into the juice, which reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for our freedom. And then we take it into ourselves because of what you have done, 
I've been made free. And we eat the bread. So let's start first with that place of examination. I'm just going to give a few moments uh, for you just in the quietness of your seat where you are to ask the Lord. And listen, if your kids just came back in, do it with them. Just pray a simple prayer with them. Lord Jesus, is there anything that I'm holding back from you? And then just see what he says. If he brings something up, do business right now with him. And then I'll invite us up for a time to celebrate. Are any areas of life that you're calling us to repentance? Lord, may we respond in faith. May we respond in trust. Trusting that you can do better with our lives than even we can. We want to repent of our sins, to to turn away from our way and back to you. That our sins may be wiped out and the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. May we experience that even this morning, I pray, God. May we experience your freedom and love this morning. Lord, would you make your presence known as we celebrate what you have done on our behalf. The lengths to which you were willing to go to be with us again. Thank you does not cut it, Jesus. It doesn't even come close, but it's all that we have right now. And so we pray, thank you, Jesus. Come and have your way among us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we sing these songs, uh, just come up as you are ready, as a, as a family or, or just yourself, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, uh, and just thank the Lord for what he's done on our behalf.